Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Iowa's a traditional swing state. Uh, Obama won it. And then Iowa went for Trump by nine points and 2016 and eight points in 2020. Yeah. And, and then I also have to say, you know, we're talking about when you're talking about Iowa, you're talking about farmland. You know, you're talking about people that were absolutely hurt with these tariffs. And that's a place where I would think would be the first place to say we're done with this with 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 Donald Trump. But you're right. I mean, it's one of those shocking things when you look at the end of the election and you go, wow, how did he pull it off there? People are concerned that Iowa may not be a swing state anymore which would be very, very painful. And there are some folks in the Democratic Party who are looking at it and saying, well, you know, that this isn't really fertile ground for us anymore. If you're in a place that's going red, like you're losing it in front of your very eyes. Uh, and I don't think the National Democratic Party takes that stuff very seriously, honestly. They're just like, did we win? Yes, all right, moving on. What are the new places we can win? Georgia, where I am now, okay. Swap out Iowa for Georgia, done. Saying to those people, it's like, whoop, like, we're not competitive here anymore. Like, you know, like, see ya, you know, yeah. is fucking terrible. Yeah, think about those people. They're like, what do you mean you're leaving? <laughs> what do you mean you don't care anymore? They feel like they have been absolutely left out, you know, to, to just suffer for themselves. Hey everybody, this is Zach Grauman, Andrew's former campaign manager and co-host of Yank Speaks. Welcome back to a special Christmas Eve episode of Yank Speaks. And today's episode, we've got an awesome guest, Richard Ojeda, former congressional candidate from the great state of West Virginia, ran a really compelling, even national race in many ways, and has been fighting to turn West Virginia blue and for a lot of great causes. Uh, former Army veteran, really, really fascinating guy. You guys are going to love it. And for those of you who are really following the important news, the Buffalo Bills are AFC East champions. Merry Christmas to all. Anyway, guys, I hope you enjoy this. It's an amazing conversation between two fascinating individuals. Happy holidays to all and enjoy it. Hey, Richard, it's great to be here. Yes. Oh, my brother. Look at this. Yeah. Airborne indeed. Yeah, glad to have you on here, brother. This you know, I, I'm a huge fan and, and, and it's just anytime I get the opportunity to hang out with you, it's a good time. So right at you, Richard, I admired you and your work for years. And then when we got to connect uh, during the campaign, it was a privilege for me. And we got some West Virginia talent from you. Some of your former staffers came and worked on the campaign. 
and so I feel like I had a little bit of your campaign's DNA, which made me feel, <laughs> which, made, which made me feel good. Honestly, well, it was it was it was an honor to to go to New York to spend some time with your team. Uh, but you know, let me just go ahead and jump right into this conversation here. You know, you're down in Georgia right now. And, you know, we have, you know, the president of the United States claiming all this voter fraud and all these things right here, you know. Uh, and, and we also know that we have an opportunity if those two candidates, John Ossoff and Dr. Reverend Warnock, actually win. We can flip the Senate and give President Joe Biden-elect a Senate that he can work with. So tell us about what's going on down there in Georgia and, and, and are there any type of roadblocks that you're finding in your way? Uh, I went door to door yesterday in Columbus. We had a rally of canvassers uh, and people here in Georgia energized. Um, it's going to be a turnout battle, in my opinion, because a lot of folks voted in November and think, well, that's it. And then sometimes when you say, hey, you ready to vote again, they look at you like, oh, <laughs> there's another vote. Though at this point, they probably have seen TV ads from one side or another uh, about this special election. But you're 100% right, Richard, unless we want Mitch McConnell playing obstructionist for another two years minimum, we need these seats. And we're seeing right now, if Washington has an excuse not to work, it won't work. So we need to do everything we can to get senators in place that actually want to do something. Uh, and for years now, Mitch McConnell has been the leader of not doing anything. I, I said on the trail yesterday, it's like he has a car pointed at a ditch and all he wants to do is just run the car and rev the engine into the ditch. And that's not what the American people need right now. Well, and I think that that's absolutely a perfect conversation because, you know, when you realize that one of the main issues of holding legislation hostage is Mitch McConnell. And we're talking about legislation that absolutely, you know, does away with gerrymandering, you know, requires that more people uh, expose their donors so that everybody can see actually where their money is coming from. We're talking about raising minimum wage. There's just so many things out there that this guy is basically sitting on to keel. And to me, that is one of the greatest you know, conversations when you let these people know that Kentucky couldn't sit Mitch McConnell down, but Georgia can. That's right. We can demote Mitch McConnell to the minority. Wouldn't that be glorious? Uh, <laughs> he's, he's been, again, obstructing any kind of meaningful bills for a long time. Uh, and I feel like Georgia's a success story where if you were to go back eight, 10 years and say Georgia is going to have gone for... Uh, the Democrat in a presidential election, that uh, these elections would be so tight. People would be like, Georgia, you know, what are you talking about? Uh, and it's one reason why I admire what you've done so much, Richard, in fighting for the people of West Virginia, but also with no Democrats left behind, fighting for the folks in Tennessee, in rural Florida, in places that Democrats need help and support. And I was staggered by how little support many, many candidates get from the National Democratic Party if the district is red leaning. I feel like the Democrats at this point are kind of this financial optimization organization where they say like, what, what, we, you know, like we don't think it's a good use of money and then they spend nothing. Uh, you have to invest in places for them to be competitive. And Georgia's benefiting from an investment that took years from organizers on the ground uh, and folks who've been trying to turn this state purple for a long time. 
Absolutely. You know, Stacey Abrams has become a hero to the Democratic Party. But, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the Democratic Party has no problem dumping money into races against Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham when, honestly, it's almost impossible to be able to flip those seats. And one of the main reasons why is because people in Kentucky, even if they don't like Mitch McConnell, they know Mitch McConnell has a script that he reads that says, look, I'm the senior person in the Senate. If you get rid of me and you replace me with uh, Amy McGrath, she starts at the bottom of the ladder. And, you know, hate to say it, but that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, argument to have. But, you know, one of the things about us with No Dim Left Behind and, and going into red, you know, rural America... You know, there's people there that are amazing candidates that have a phenomenal platform that deserve to be heard. And just because they don't come from money, the Democratic Party automatically turns them off. And we have to convince them that those are the races that are the most important to invest in because we will never flip any place from red to blue unless we put in the groundwork. Uh, it's one thing I love about your organization, Richard, and I had the pleasure of meeting some of the candidates you endorsed, and they were tremendous. Uh, I endorsed some of them myself and wanted to endorse them all, honestly, because uh, they were they were tremendous candidates and human beings. I did get behind Blair Walsingham, obviously, who was a Yang Gang uh, candidate in Tennessee, uh, Tom Paulsowitz in Wisconsin. Yes. But you could go on and on and look at Adam Christensen in Florida. You can go on and on and look at the folks. I would actually urge anyone to dig into the candidates that were endorsed by No Dem Left Behind uh, and to see what they were about because they were amazing candidates. Uh, and one of the things, this really deeply affected me, Richard, because I saw these amazing candidates, not just yours, but others, uh, lose in these districts that should have been very competitive, but the blue wave that many anticipated did not materialize. You actually had more of a red wave in a lot of places. Yeah. Uh, you, you had folks who got their vote count, but then it turns out that many, many people came out and voted for Trump that didn't show up in 2016. Uh, and this really has shaped my viewpoint on what we have to do moving forward. Uh, like where if you're going to have any kind of governing majority, you're going to need to change it up. Uh, you're going to need to invest in places you haven't invested in. You're going to have to invest in candidates you haven't invested in, in people and places. Uh, but also you need like different terms of engagement, to use a military term, where right now you have this clash that's going on and no one's really going to win uh, enough to govern. Uh, and uh, that's disastrous for us. And, and what that does is the frustration goes up, uh, the hostility goes up, polarization goes up, and still nothing happens. Um, so I, I'm I'm now convinced that that's actually the fundamental problem that we have to solve for. And your organization is one of the organizations trying to help. Well, you know, we're actually, you know, hoping that a lot of our candidates are willing to basically run again in two years for those seats. You know, even though we didn't uh, flip any seats from red to blue, we believed that we had amazing candidates that with time absolutely can. Tom Pauzewicz, Blair Walsingham, Lindsey Simmons. I mean, we had amazing candidates that, Lindsay you know... Simmons was tremendous too. Oh my gosh. I mean, you know, a Harvard graduate. She also happens to be the wife of a helicopter pilot in the United States military that is is deployed with a bounty on his head. I mean, her story was an amazing story. Incredible. And it just it, absolutely. And and those are the people that, you know, I really hope, you know, continue in this fight. You know, I ran for Congress 
And, and the truth is, is that, you know, I probably should have ran again for, for that same seat because I might have had a better chance. But in West Virginia, honestly, I mean, Trump has, has for some odd reason convinced these people that he's practically the second coming of Christ. And, and honestly, I mean, I'll tell you right now, West Virginia, this last election was a bloodbath. We lost every single state seat to the Republicans. Uh, we lost all three of the congressional seats, uh, or we lost the elections from the three candidates that we had. We lost the Senate race. And then in terms of state Senate and the local House of Delegates for the state level, I mean, once again, the Republicans picked up even more even more uh, uh, seats. So there, there was a red wave in a lot of the country, Richard, truthfully. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this book uh, I'm reading now, Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein, actually makes so many compelling points about how people are voting. Uh, and one mistake that we make is that we're arguing in terms of policy and impact. Uh, and it turns out there's actually a pretty weak correlation between whether you say you're conservative or, or liberal and what you actually think about on a list of policies. <laughs> you know, it's very, it's at this point, we're kind of in teams or tribes uh, and we have knee-jerk reactions uh, based upon whether particular terms have been charged positively or negatively uh, for us. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the things uh, the, I take from this cycle is that this red wave that happened in West Virginia and Texas and uh, West New York, like a lot of different places, uh, it, it's born not of the fact that people are against common sense measures that might improve everyone's life. Uh, it, it's that right now we're getting uh, turned into teams, more or less. Uh, and there used to be more of like an American team um, where you, you just, you know, you could have honest disagreements. Uh, this book, Why We're Polarized, breaks down why it's become so much more pronounced now than it was in past years. And it's very compelling. Well, you know, I'm hoping that the Democratic Party is, you know, looking at this last election and really starting to pay attention to the things that have went on and trying to basically re-strategize, you know, and come back in, in 2022 and figure out how we can finally flip some of these seats from red to blue. I think that we have to. I mean, it's not just, you know, it, it, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. I mean, you're talking about, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that I believe are absolutely doing harm to the average citizen out there. I mean, you know, right now we have a president that is trying to undermine our democracy. He's trying to plant a seed in people's heads that voting is, is, is a sham. And, and, and I mean, it's just, I, it, it amazes me how many people actually are falling. They're, they're taking that, the, the, the hook, line, and sinker, you know, I don't understand it. Uh, well, it, it's tough. We're, we're entering a post-fact environment, Richard, and it's very, very dangerous. Uh, you know, if you can't agree on facts, then it just really deteriorates quickly into uh, my presenting one version of reality and you're presenting yours. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now 
seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I'd love to hear more about the work that No Dems Left Behind is doing. I love the idea of some of these folks like Lindsay Simmons running again, because I, I think that when you run multiple times, people are more familiar with you. They trust you more. There's a sense that, oh, like they weren't just uh, one and done. Um, so I hope a lot of these candidates come back, but I'd love to hear what you've learned through No Dems Left Behind uh, and what you would tell the Democratic Party to do if you were just sitting there opposite the new DNC chair, who I think is going to be Jamie Harrison, who actually is, I think, very familiar with some of these issues because he was the South Carolina state chair in South Carolina, in case you hadn't noticed, is, is kind of red. Well, I, once again, it comes down to just investing in these races. You know, I mean, the problem that the Democratic Party is they initially, and this is the worst part, is the first thing that they look at is how much money do you have? And if you don't surprise them with a massive amount of cash, they are so quick to go click and turn you off. Well, can, can you talk about your experience as a candidate yourself? Because you kind of became a viral sensation when you ran for Congress. You were not the first person to say to me that the Democratic Party just tries to look at how much money you raised uh, and they don't seem to evaluate the candidate, uh, the platform, their connection with the community, you know, their, their appeal. Uh, they, they just try and, and I'm a numbers guy, but on this one, you know, you, there, there's much more to this picture than numbers. So how did you get this impression from the Democratic Party? Was it through your own experience or Absolutely. through your candidates or what? Well, you know, it was through my own experience, but then I've seen it again in this no dim left behind. But, you know, for me, basically, we were told right off the bat that the Democratic Party doesn't like my race, that my race is unwinnable. It was an R plus 54. They basically just turned me off. So we won the primary and we won it pretty big. And then, you know, it took us literally about a month and a half into the general election to where we finally were able to provide polling that said, Richard Ojeda is trending here. And people across the state on both sides of the aisle are, are liking what I was saying. And it was only when we were able to show that to our United States Senator Joe Manchin and asked Joe Manchin to try to help us out a little bit and reach out to the Democratic Party and the DCCC and say, hey, you need to give this guy a look. And when they finally did, they kind of stay, they, they stayed off at a distance, but they started watching us. And then when we started putting together our, our commercials, and you know my, my commercials and my videos went viral. I mean, I mean, we had a guy that was a, was a laid off coal miner that basically took to YouTube and learned how to become a, 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 a producer, I guess, you know, and he started filming my commercials and they caught on. And it was then that the Democratic Party finally said, okay, we're going to put you on the red to blue list. And from that moment on, I mean, it was phenomenal. We raised all kinds of money. And at the end of the day, you know, we actually at one time had polling that showed that we were winning. But, you know, when you're in an area like I live in, Trump come down there twice. 
He come down here twice. The first time he was in Charleston, he stood on a podium and called me a stone-cold crazy wacko. And, of course, he introduced my opponent. And then he come back later, and he basically tried to paint me into the caravan because he pronounced my name the way that it's normally pronounced in, in places like Mexico. And he tried to tie me. And we watched our poll numbers just just drop. Uh, if it's me and I'm the Democratic Party, I'm like, okay, who are my congressional candidates like in these races? And yeah, of course you have to prioritize somewhat, um, but there should be like a baseline level of support if you get as the Democratic congressional candidate just about anywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and then if you start showing traction, then you know they can start making investments. I mean, part of the issue too is that sometimes uh, their advice is you know not the greatest. Um, so, so, so in your experience with uh, the no Dems left behind candidates, what is the baseline level of support a Democratic congressional candidate currently receives in a district that is not considered uh, a swing or competitive district? Like, let's say Blair Walsingham, I uh, like wins her nomination in. Uh, Tennessee, like, does she get anything from the Democratic Party? Well, that's one of the things is that I, I really can't answer that question. They definitely should. If they win the primary, they absolutely should. But I do not think that any of our candidates really received hardly anything at all from the Democratic Party. They were pretty much left out there fighting their own battles themselves uh, because I, I do not believe that any of our candidates received any support at all from the DCCC. And then no Dems left behind. I, I mean, you yourself are not like some mammoth money grows on trees type organization, uh, but you did what you could for them. Like what, what, did, what did the no Dem left behind support look like? Well, you know, we tried to be able to bring on certain folks across this country that could highlight our stories of our candidates. And that right there did help us to be able to raise money. It helped our candidates directly with fundraising. You know, we had uh, town halls where you hosted one of our town halls. We had yeah. uh, Alyssa Milano. We've had uh, just quite a few different folks that come on and, and, and gave our candidates a voice. And that right there, you know, when you have Alyssa Milano and she's bringing our candidates in front of a huge amount of folks that are interested in, in politics and they like what they hear and see, that equates to support. And, and that's how our candidates were able to continue fighting. You know, and we had amazing candidates. We had Mia, uh, um, uh, Mia Mason, which was the first yeah. female transgender uh, Democratic nominee in Maryland's first district. Anybody that took the time to listen to what she had to say was impressed. Uh, Tom yeah. Pauzewicz, my goodness gracious. I mean, that guy is amazing. Yeah, I was blown away by your candidates. Uh, and... Getting them in front of people is certainly helpful. One thing I heard from multiple candidates, Richard, you should you probably already know this, uh, but their favorite thing about your organization was the support they got from each other because it's such an isolating, humbling process running for office, much less running for Congress in a district that is tilted significantly against you. <laughs> and, and so you feel like you're alone in it, and they had each other. Like, like several of them actually said to me that being in touch with each other was profoundly helpful. And promoting each other, you know, in their own states. And 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 when we did those live town halls, you know, we were able to uh, we were able to 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 know that our our candidates were getting better support from other from other states.
This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S V-P-N dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. You know what? One place that I spent a lot of time on the trail was Iowa. And Iowa is a traditional swing state. Uh, Obama won it. Um, It's obviously the first in the nation caucus. Uh, and then Iowa went for Trump by nine points in 2016 and eight points in 2020. And uh, people are concerned that Iowa may not be a swing state anymore, which would be very, very painful. Uh, and to me, this is an exact emblem of what's happening with the Democratic Party and the, the thing they should fight against. So Iowa is a predominantly rural state. Uh, it's a predominantly white state. Uh, and there are some folks in the Democratic Party who are looking at it and saying, well, you know, that this isn't really fertile ground for us anymore. Uh, and that's catastrophic for all of us. So one of the things that I'm suggesting is like, hey, Democrats, like you need to go to Iowa and figure out why you're losing. <laughs> you, know, you know, and you probably know J.D. Shulton, uh, one of the, candidate, the candidates there. Great guy. Ran twice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and amazing. And yeah, amazing guy. And had a tougher time in 2020 than in his last race, in part because of this red wave we're describing. So th- this to me is the fundamental challenge. Another state that had a similar profile, very, very swing uh, history, but Trump won by eight points or so twice now, is Ohio. Uh, similar dynamic, though Ohio is significantly more diverse uh, than Iowa, but, but some of these dynamics are similar. You have a state that represents the agricultural Midwest in Iowa, and then the industrial Midwest in Ohio uh, used to both be swing states, and now Democrats are losing in both of them. And, and to me, what you're doing with no Democrats left behind and what's happening in those two swing states, formerly swing states, uh, it's virtually identical, which is like, yeah. why can Democrats not appeal to people who live in these communities? Yeah, and, and then I also have to say, you know, we're talking about, when you're talking about Iowa, you're talking about farmland. You know, you're talking about people that were absolutely hurt with these tariffs. 
And that's a place where I would think would be the first place to say, we're done with this, with, with, with Donald Trump. But you're right. I mean, it's one of those shocking things when you look at the end of the election and you go, wow, how did he pull it off there? Yeah, Abby Finkenauer, incumbent Democrat, uh, lost her bid for re-election, uh, so that hurts. I mean, I know a lot of these Iowa Democrats, and it's painful. Uh, you know, like if you're in a community, so it's hard enough what you do with no Democrats left behind or in West Virginia, where in your community that's very, very red-leaning, and then you're trying to make the case with Democratic Party, that's very, very difficult. You know what may even be more difficult is when you're making the case in a place that is going red around you. Uh, because at least when you start out in a place that's kind of low, frankly, then you're like, okay, no place to go but up from here. <laughs> you know, like we we can, like we're, we're heading in a good direction. I've got a lot to build off, a lot of untapped potential. Uh, whereas if you're in a place that's going red, like you're losing it in front of your very eyes, uh, and I don't think the National Democratic Party takes that stuff very seriously. Honestly, they're just like, did we win? Yes. All right, moving on. What are the new places we can win? Georgia, where I am now. Okay, swap out Iowa for Georgia. Done. And uh, and then you're just like, well, that doesn't solve our problems. It doesn't keep us from polarizing. Uh, and I happen to know now hundreds, maybe thousands of Democratic activists in uh, Iowa. I mean, I hopscotched that state, you know, went to county event after county event. And so saying to those people, it's like, whoop, like we're not competitive here anymore. Like, you know, like see ya, you know, yeah. is fucking terrible. Yeah. Think about those people. They're like, what do you mean? You're leaving. You're, what do you mean you don't care anymore? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, they feel like they have been absolutely left out, you know, to, to just suffer for themselves. That's what we have to try and steer away from. Uh, again, it's one reason I feel so strongly about No Dems Left Behind and the work you do is that I feel like you're helping lead us in that direction where the Democrats are actually trying to solve problems in communities that are not uh, super hospitable. You know, yeah. like that to me has to be the point. Well, you know, we like to say we go into red rural districts and we pick a fight. And the truth is, is we're at the point now where we're going to have to sling it out with everybody because it continues to get redder and redder and redder. It is getting redder and redder, Richard. I have some re some reasons in my mind as to why that's happening. I mean, a lot of it is that if you have a mindset of scarcity, uh, then you become much more susceptible to suggestions that... Uh, these institutions aren't working. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft. Made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. The fact is a lot of our institutions are not working. Uh, and, and this is one of the other traps for the Democratic Party in my mind, is that if you're like the party that's arguing that things are working, and then other people are like, no, no, they're not working, like it, it becomes a progressively harder to, case to make that institutions are working when we can all look around us and be like, I'm not sure things are working so well. I mean, Congress and its failure to get out any kind of uh, relief bill between April and December, I mean, that's a colossal failure. Uh, yeah. And that's on everyone. Um, but, it, you know, the, the institutional failures are all around us. And uh, I think it's it's one reason why you're seeing this growth in 
enthusiasm among some folks who are kind of outside the system right now because the system's not working for a lot of people. Yeah, and I think that's one of the main reasons why Donald Trump was able to take hold is he capitalized on that. During the swamp, I'm going to break things up. I'm going to do things differently. A lot of Americans were like, yeah. And there, yeah. there was like a significant amount of me that was like, okay, I get that appeal. I get it. Um, now, I was still staggered that, you know, another 6 million Americans decided to double down on him. Uh, after watching his style of governance fail miserably. Uh, so that was jarring to me. Uh, and I think that's like a very clear red flag. I took a giant red flag from 2016. It got me to run where I said, okay, this is not working. Uh, and to me, the problem was that we'd blasted away millions of manufacturing jobs in the swing states, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, and we're going to do the same thing. You know how I think about this, like to retail jobs, call center jobs, and eventually truck driving jobs. I believe all still is happening more than ever. It's speeding up um, yes. because of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, I took another red flag from 2020, which is that the polarization is growing, uh, the sense of institutional failure is growing, and we don't have unlimited time. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think that Democrats need to really dig deep and figure out, okay, like why do so many Americans feel like shit is not working for them? You know, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, I, I'm sitting here and I'm wondering, you know, how on earth does Donald Trump still have so many supporters when I don't see? I mean, I, I see him shutting down the government. I see him turning his back on the Kurds. I see him ignoring a global pandemic that he and many of those that were in those rooms knew that would come across us and absolutely decimate uh, families across this country. And I just don't understand how he still has the support that he has. I mean, I'm glad that, that, that uh, you know, Joe Biden has broken all records, but it still makes me sad when I look it's and realize. Yeah, it's, a, it's a giant red flag for all of us. It is. I mean, 70 some million people still supported Donald Trump. And we're talking about a man who has golfed more than anything. We're talking about a man who has made America hate again and has done things against our allies and they still support him. What can you do? And that's the big question for the Democratic Party. What can we do? Now, we, we need to make different kinds of appeals. Uh, I think we need to broaden the way we speak to folks. I think, again, we need to invest in communities that right now we are not investing in. Um, we have to try and get behind people as well as numbers, to your point. And I'm the math guy saying that. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> think about that. Uh, that, that there, there needs to be a soul-searching process for the Democratic Party quickly, quickly, because we don't have unlimited time. I mean, to, to eke out a victory against Donald Trump, and I know we won by a lot in the popular vote, um, but we lost five House seats last I checked, uh, and the Democrats thought they were going to gain five to 15, which I would have agreed with before the fact, because like you, I'd be like, well, no one's going to vote for this guy after all of this. I mean, I thought he'd get his his base, but I didn't think there'd be all of these new supporters. I didn't think it was going to be um, this close in a lot of places. But again, it, it, like, it wasn't just close in a lot of places. Republicans won like uh, a lot of these races. Republicans beat Abby Finkenauer, you know, beat, beat Democrats that had won uh, in past cycles. So there, there's something really 
important going on on the ground, and we just don't have unlimited time. Uh, you know, I I ran for president in part because I was like, look, we just don't have time. Uh, this stuff's getting faster and nastier very, very quickly. And even I underestimated how bad it, it is now. Uh, you know, it, it's wild. Like, you almost can't overestimate how nasty things are getting. Yeah, you know, I, I, I tell people, and it's, it's kind of a joke, but it's really not a joke. I tell them, especially where I'm from here in West Virginia, I said, look, you could wrap a daggone piece of dog shit in a damn Trump napkin and these people would vote for it. And the truth is, is that there's a lot of truth in that. I was in South Carolina with Jermaine Johnson. Did you meet Jermaine on the trail? I was there to swearing in uh, the other day. I didn't. Jermaine, heart of gold, great candidate, uh, won his state rep seat in South Carolina, first-time candidate, beat a 50-year incumbent by 40 points. He's a 35-year-old uh, uh, former professional basketball player who got his doctorate and uh, you know, has, has been helping people. He's like just a great, great guy, great candidate. Uh, but one of his fellow reps um, was a retiree who didn't even campaign and had retired like in 2006. So she hasn't even worked in 14 years and didn't campaign, just put her name on a re Republican line against a Democratic incumbent. Like everyone ignored the race because it was a Democratic incumbent state rep who was well-known and well-liked against like a total non-factor. <laughs> and you know how the story ends. Uh, the retiree won despite not campaigning a day. Um, so Jermaine, when he gets there, he's, uh, you know, at the state house. And then one of his new fellow reps is this retiree who just put her name and just everyone went and voted R, uh, you know, so, so that there's a, a lot of voting going on, um, that isn't based on principle or the candidates or platforms. There's just a lot of folks showing up and, uh, pushing R or D, uh, and, um, that's like a very painful reality where Jermaine tells me the story and I'm just like, oh no, you know, like that there, I mean, some of the candidates, Adam Christensen, who you, both you and I supported, his opponent seemed awful, <laughs> like, like truly awful. Uh, and, and part of you is like, no way that person's going to get into Congress, but you know, like, um, she's going to be sworn in in, in, in January. So, uh, it, it's painful, Richard. Well, after, after my race, I, you know, I, I've realized that, you know, Nothing, nothing should surprise you when you're talking about politics. You know, I mean, I put boots on the ground in every single county in the third congressional district. I did everything to answer anybody's questions, live videos almost every night to answer anybody's questions. And I got beat by a person that refused to speak to the news, refused to answer any questions from constituents, and basically just said, whatever Trump wants is what I'm going to do. Boom. And she won. Yeah, it's, it's really tough on a lot of candidates when they see this. Now, I read something that struck me as also painful, but kind of accurate. It said that when you're in one of these campaigns, it's like you're in one of those hot air balloons and you're throwing things overboard or like making de like decisions to try and like turn and steer. And then where the balloon winds up is more a result of the weather than anything else. <laughs> like, like you're controlling these things. But yeah. then like if the wind blows you, uh, you know... Um, you know, toward the the ocean or whatever, like that's where you wind up. So, I mean, uh, that's what happened to a lot of these candidates. You know, like you control what you can control, um, but then like, if, if the wind blows in a direction, it's tough because a lot of people aren't paying that close attention. Um, and to the extent they, they get motivated, they get motivated by the weather. Tell me something, you're down there on the ground in Georgia. 
are you feeling any uh, negativity concerning, you know, where, where, where Donald Trump is basically saying that, uh, you know, obviously the election is, is, is a hoax? And, and now we're also, you know, hearing rumors that some people are even talking about boycotting. If the Republicans boycott, and I'll tell you right now, this is what I want to make sure people understand. If you hear people saying that Republicans are going to boycott a race, don't you dare think that that's true. You better make sure that every single person out there that is a Democrat is absolutely going to those polls and casting their votes because it's no different than looking at polls and saying, ah, we're up in the polls. We don't have to worry about it because that's how you get beat. What am I seeing here? Uh, one thing I will say is that I think Senator David Perdue has a stronger real connection with the community than Senator Kelly Loeffler does. Kelly Loeffler never got elected, got appointed after making a large donation uh, to the Republican Party. Um, they've both been tarred with insider trading issues where when they heard about the coronavirus, they went and bought and sold stocks. I mean, like wow. that's a real... Uh, leadership type activity. It's like, you know, if, if, if your country is going to get ravaged by a pandemic, you better adjust your stock portfolio. Uh, so uh, I, I feel like in a vacuum, I think Kelly Loeffler would be much, much more vulnerable. Um, but as it is to our earlier discussion, people are going to show up and vote D or R. So you have to assume in my mind that either Democrats are going to get both or Democrats are going to get neither. Uh, do I think that there's some Republican um, mixed messaging going on? Oh yeah, like that. There, there's a lot of confusion and mixed messaging going on, uh, and there are some Republicans who seem concerned that that's not going to help them. Um, I think they're probably right. You know that the, the it, it's interesting, Richard. When we talk about like the anti-institutional sentiment that's coming up, I mean the biggest anti-institutional sentiment is is the folks being like, yeah, this election was rigged. Like the votes aren't being counted, et cetera. Uh, and so it's hard to get people who are that mistrustful to vote. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like that. That's so. The, so that's something the Republican Party is trying to balance right now. Uh, I I think they are going to lose at least a handful of votes at the margins. Now you and I both know how horrible it was for them to commit insider trading, especially after getting private briefings that the regular citizens don't get, and they absolutely did exactly what you know you would think that corrupt people would do. But the problem that I believe is a lot of people act like that's not a big deal because the majority of people in this country don't play in the stock market because they can't afford to. So they may not look at that as as big as crime as it is, but it is an absolute big crime with what they have done. I mean, you know, Kelly Loeffler, I mean, we're talking about she's worth $500 million. That's her net worth. And that's not enough. It's not enough for her. She has to try to do underhanded tactics to get even more and that is horrible when you think about it. Well, sometimes, Richard, money gets into someone's bloodstream in a way where it's just like, you know, there's never enough. Uh, and one of the things that happens is that if the person's on your team, then you'll be like, well, it wasn't so bad. Uh, and that there is like an issue here that is very, very fundamental. I don't know how to address it. It's that the Democrats have become the party of moralizing where they say, look, you know, you should not do this. You should not do that. And a lot of the stuff I 100% agree with when they're saying something like, hey, you should wear a mask. I'm like, yes, everyone should wear a mask. I mean, like, you know, what's the harm? You get some uh, people from sickness and, and worse. Um, and so if Democrats come and say, hey, you shouldn't, <laughs> you, you shouldn't insider trade on information you're getting. Uh, like at, at this point, I think Trump has shattered all these norms where 
uh, he's going around uh, just doing whatever the heck. And a lot of Republicans are like, yeah, yeah. And then when you come along and say, hey, you probably shouldn't be uh, asking you know, a foreign leader to try and investigate your political rival. They're just like, ah, whatever, whatever. You know, like, and, and this is something, this whatever impulse uh, is getting stronger and stronger um, because we have like these institutional lines of behavior. And, you know, obviously you're a patriot. You fought and been wounded for our country. Like you have a very, very strong belief in right and wrong. And so if someone does something wrong, you're like, oh, that's completely trash. And, you know, how the hell can you vote for someone who's going to do that when, when you're like an exemplar of uh, personal sacrifice? Uh, that, that Those kinds of guardrails are deteriorating before our eyes. Like if there's someone who just shows up and, uh, you know, just says like, ah, eh, hang it, like, don't do this, don't do that, doesn't matter. There are millions of Americans now who get on board with that. Uh, and And this is something that, it's going to be very, very difficult to come back from, to overcome. It's something that I'm struggling with all the time now, because if you're in an environment where, again, people don't have the same set of facts, then it's like very, very hard. Um, and people's trust has been declining for years. We've got a very tough trust rebuild ahead of us. If everything were to go right, and you had a government that had its act together, and a society that had its act together, uh, but we don't. You know, so we, we have this kind of dysfunctional, seized-up government trying to solve bigger problems than ever. Well, you know, one of the things also, you know, is is this whole, you know, COVID-19 piece. And it amazes me how so many people have failed for the, it's a fake, it's a hoax. You know, and Donald Trump it actually stated that, you know, after November the 3rd, you wouldn't have to worry about wearing your mask again because the hoax would be gone. And we have so many people, 2,500 plus every day now, and it's going to it's going to stay that way until the inauguration, and, it, and it's it's going to go on past that until we can make sure that everybody gets the vaccine and we can finally get out in front of this. But you know, the hundred days of wearing a mask, you know, it just amazes me how many people are willing to sacrifice themselves over. You know, they don't have a doctorate. You know, but they automatically, all of a sudden now, all these people are experts in medicine. Uh, again, Richard, and th this is something um, that I'm learning too. Um, so let's say I'm a media organization. Uh, and what I do is I present things that I think are factual and fact-based and say, hey, here are rational responses. Here's a rational thing to do. And let's say millions of Americans now are having what you'd consider to be not super rational responses. Let's say, you know, deciding that the coronavirus is a hoax, that... Um, that wearing a mask is a bad idea and a bunch of other things. Uh, so one approach is to be like, what the heck are you doing? You know, like the, the facts are clear. Uh, the thing I'm trying to grapple with now, though a lot of me feels that way, uh, is to say, okay, like why are you acting ir what I consider irrationally? Because at this point, it's not like a handful of people. It's like millions of people. Uh, and then you look around and say, what are the conditions that have put you in a position where you are now acting irrationally? Uh, and and there are a lot of conditions that are being created around the country um, that have pushed a lot of people into uh, depression, anxiety, stress, uh, and even pre-COVID, you know, there there was like a, an increased uptick in receptiveness to what I'd consider unreason. Uh, and, and so that that's the tough part, Richard, is that like you know if you're arguing from reason now, um, the audience is getting smaller and smaller. Um, like the audience for unreason is getting bigger and bigger. And the audience for unreason is getting fueled by the internet <laughs> and social media and whatnot. Untruth, misinformation spread six times more quickly and powerfully than fact. 
so to the extent you start with like a kernel of unreason, it just grows and grows over time. Uh, and then people like you and I are looking at it saying, okay, like why are people not listening? What is going on? Um, and, and like, that's, that's the fundamental problem. It's like, uh, and the the answer is not necessarily to like yell the reasonable thing louder, though in this case, like I'm all for it. I'm, I'm happy to myself get a vaccine publicly and say, look, I think this is a good idea. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna need it. Um, so like, I'm gonna do my part, but there are these conditions that are breeding irrationality uh, at much, much higher levels. Part of its economic deprivation, uh, part of its institutions that uh, are, don't seem to be responsive uh, you know, like people feel like they're increasingly shut out. Your town is disintegrating, like the one restaurant in your town shut down. Like, you know, like there, there are conditions that are making people very, very um, subject to, to poor reasoning and thinking. Every public official and leader should be s speaking from the same script, honestly. Uh, you know, like that to me would have been a must if we were going to maintain some level of uh, consensus around some of the measures we're taking. I'm gonna share two stories that speak to this directly, Richard, where some people who work at a hospital um, treating coronavirus patients and then the coronavirus patients in like their last moments, instead of uh, reaching out to family members and trying to say their goodbyes, they were angry or they were uh, still in denial. They were like, this can't be happening because uh, they did not believe in the coronavirus until it had hit them. Um, that, that really hurt me to think about. Uh, and that I think that that is happening. Uh, but there's another story that's kind of, uh, you know, it's a major business story right now or, or human interest story. But it, like uh, it's someone I knew. Um, and you mentioned, you know, Harvard. But there's an entrepreneur, Tony Shea, who founded Zappos. It, it, did, have you seen this story at all, Richard? I haven't. Uh, so Tony Shea is a very famous entrepreneur. Um, he sold Zappos to Amazon for over a billion dollars, wrote a best-selling book called Delivering Happiness um, in 2010. Um, did you use Zappos at all? It's like the online shoe store. No, uh, no. They have, they have excellent customer service. Anyway, um, fast forward, uh, he, um, he passed away last week. Uh, and all of this news has come out that he was struggling with isolation and addiction. Uh, and this is someone who uh, is a famous entrepreneur worth hundreds of millions of dollars conservatively. Um, and then he got himself to a, a state where, un unfortunately, it looks like he was um, under the influence of various substances. Uh, he seemed to have a, a lot of um, uh, flammable materials around. Um, and he passed away in a fire from smoke inhalation. Um, and like that, and this hit me because I knew Tony. Uh, uh, you know, he actually donated to my campaign. Um, he and I were, um, if we weren't friends, we were very friendly. Um, I certainly would never have imagined this happening to him. But then, you know, after the fact, you kind of think about it and be like, wow, like who, who knows someone's on that path. So the reason I'm bringing him up is because like in, in my mind, he's like a victim of the coronavirus in a different way. Like he didn't wind up dead of the coronavirus, like in a hospital where, um, you know, he was, he was directly um, ill, but because of the isolation and, uh, the changed mental state because he he was someone who surrounded himself with people customarily. And then because of circumstances, he was much more isolated and ended up in, in some kind of uh, spiral. Um, that to me is like a metaphor of what a lot of Americans are struggling with right now. Uh, and if a Harvard educated centimillionaire entrepreneur can fall victim to it and pass away, 
you know, like there are people who are struggling with very basic material needs who are struggling in similar ways. Um, so, so that's just something that I've been um, thinking a lot about because, you know, when, when someone you know dies, I mean, it always hits you. So Richard, what is next for No, Dem Left, no Dems Left Behind? Well, No Dem Left Behind right now is looking at some new ways of being able to, you know, select the candidates. Uh, you know, it, it, we want to actually allow the people, you know, the people that donate the money, we want them, we want to basically introduce them to all these people that are potentially going to be on the No Dem Left Behind list. And, you know, we want to allow the people to hear their platforms, see what they're doing, and then let the people decide, yep, that's the one that we want to support, and this one, and this one, and this one, and, and we take it from there. You know, we don't have the luxury of being able to say that we can support a candidate in every single state across the country. We're still a new organization that, you know, is, is, is always trying to raise money to, get, to allow us to be able to reach out to more people. Uh, but we believe that this will be a way that can also get our candidates more support. If the average citizens out there are saying that's the one, then we're hoping to be able to allow a bigger group of people to see that and hopefully they will also commit. I love No Damn Left Behind. I, I think you're a force to help keep our country together, really, and to make the case to people that right now don't think that the Democratic Party uh, is investing in them and their community, doesn't think it's speaking to them. Uh, I love the candidates that I've met through your organization, uh, and I think more people should be paying attention to what you all are doing. Um, I think Jamie Harrison is going to be receptive to it, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I hope to get uh, some FaceTime with Jamie Harrison. You know, my story is one that I believe that they could also use to try to improve upon. Do you know Jamie, Richard? I, I've never met Jamie Harrison. I'd be absolutely elated to meet him. But, you know, I said this before. I said it on actually The Morning Joe. And I said, I'm sick and tired of showing up with a, for a fight where the Democrats are carrying pillows and the Republicans are wearing brass knuckles. It's time for the Democratic Party to knuckle up, and that's exactly what needs to happen. Uh, I'm happy to say that, and we're counting our chickens a little bit, because it might not, you know, Jamie hasn't been named yet. But if Jamie Harrison is named DNC chair, I will personally introduce the two of you, because I think the two of you need to, to be connected. Well, I'll tell you right now, I look forward to that. And the Yang Gang is a force to be reckoned with, but it absolutely, I believe, is going to continue to grow because of the things that you say. You know, uh, the, the, the UBI concept is huge. I hope that, uh, you know, your future has you once again throwing your hat in the ring. Uh, but uh, I want to take this opportunity and I want to thank you personally. You know, you're a friend of mine. Uh, we've spent some time together and I just want to say thank you for your friendship and thank you for being you, brother. Thank you, Richard. I'm I feel privileged to consider you a friend as well. I mean, you fought and bled for our country. Uh, you fought for the people of West Virginia. Now you're doing it around the country. Uh, you're an awesome patriot. Well, brother, hey, you take it easy. Tell the family I said hey. Tell your people that I said hey. And I'll see you soon, brother.